This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the great pleasure of talking to Andy Grunberg about his brand new book, How Photography Became Contemporary Art, Inside an Artistic Revolution from Pop to the Digital Age. Andy was the photography critic for the New York Times from 1981 to 1991, and later served as the director of the Ansel Adams Center for Photography in San Francisco, and as chair of the photography department and dean of the Corcoran College of Art and Design. The book, How Photography Became Contemporary Art, tells the story of the dramatic change in photography's role within the world of art between the early 60s and the early 90s, that is, from fighting for recognition as a valid and important artistic medium to being an irrefutably integral part of contemporary art. Andy, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us about your new book. It's a pleasure to talk to you about it. The story arc in your book starts in 1962. What's the significance of that year? Well, even though the book essentially concentrates on my time in New York, which was the 1970s and 1980s, the story that I'm telling really starts in the 60s. And 1962 was a formative year for both contemporary art and for photography um, with several, several things on several fronts happening. Um, most famously, because it's been recorded in, in uh, lots of criticism and art history, is that Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg both started using the silkscreen process to silkscreen photographs onto canvas. Um, even though these things were called paintings and were sold as paintings, it really marks the beginning of photographs appearing within contemporary art being put on the wall, um, albeit transformed by silkscreen ink. But um, this was really a way of opening up contemporary art, which before 1962 had predominantly been abstract. Suddenly, the the world outside of the art world, if you will, the, the space between art and life, as, as Rauschenberg said, became where contemporary art relocated itself. So those two artists in New York sharing this technology of silkscreen printing introduced photography into the gallery walls um, in New York. In California, an artist named Ed Ruscha started taking photographs as he was driving from Los Angeles, where he was living, to um, Oklahoma, where he was from, to create a book called 26 Gasoline Stations, which was published the next year. These pictures are, it, to photographers, they're banal, kind of vernacular, boring-looking photographs of gas stations. They're not especially great looking compositions or even printed that well, but they were part of this project that he started, which was really a, a, a precursor of what conceptual art became, which is that they were standing in for Rouchet's idea about the repetition of certain forms, the way architecture was cited in the environment, lots of different things to, to say about it. But the, but the idea that photography would become the essentially the way in which he would convey this message in the book 26 Gasoline Stations um, 
was a new thing and, re and really changed the way artists began to think about how they could make work. It didn't have to be painting on canvas in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, from the other perspective, which is photography itself and its long, long history of trying to be accepted as an art form, there were two important events that happened in 1962. One was that the Museum of Modern Art switched directors of its photography program from Edward Steichen, who by then was in his 80s, who was a sort of old school curator who saw photography as being this instrument of communication, most famously in the exhibition, The Family of Man, which he did in the 50s, to a young photographer then in his 30s named John Sharkovsky. And John Sharkovsky, from 1962 until he retired in the 90s, really became the leading force in a reconsideration of photography as an aesthetic object, really rooted in its, in its own formal characteristics and the, thing that, the things that he thought photography did best. But the, because it was at, he was at the Museum of Modern Art, it really had a huge influence um, on, the, on the, both the practice of photography and the criticism of photography, what his thinking was. And finally, in, in Rochester, New York, which is another center for photography because it was the home of Kodak, a curator at the George Eastman House named Nathan Lyons organized a conference of photography teachers. Now, that doesn't seem that remarkable, except at the time, photography was not really in the curriculum of colleges and universities. It was a, it was, it was a um, marginal subject at best. So, the first conference had, I think, 30 people who could vaguely claim to be photography teachers. They came together, and this led to the establishment of a group called the Society for Photographic Education, which really became a center of discussion about photography as an art form for the, for the next 30 years. It became a, a site where people who were teaching photography in higher education, which became a boom field in the 70s and the 80s, would gather and compare notes and in a way reassure themselves that they weren't that marginal because within their art departments, they were um, often considered to be the, the kind of lesser, the lesser teachers, the, le the, the lesser medium at least. But 1962 is just this great year to start the book because it's got all this action-packed stuff happening. Yeah, and it, what, one of the things you mentioned about uh, Ed Richet's gas station project um, brings to mind something you talk about in the book, which is that, you know, throughout the 60s, one of the changes uh, you discuss is a shift toward artworks in general that that exist in the service of demonstrating the quality of an artist's thought process. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and also um, about its relevance to the growing importance of photography. Sure. So there's a, a famous anthology from the 60s um, made by Lucy Lepard, who's a great critic, called The Dematerialization of the Artwork. And that's, that's sort of become the slogan of what happened in the 60s, which is instead of thinking about making material objects that then can be shown in the gallery, bought by a museum, bought by collectors. Artists in rebellion from that materialist notion 
and we have to remember the 60s were full of rebellion against materialist notions, um, among other things. Uh, artists that, that wanted to, to dematerialize the art object, to, to produce some other kind of art that wasn't dependent on this gallery marketing system, um, chose to do a kind of art that was more, in, in some cases, idea-oriented, what gets to be called conceptual art, which is really about systems of thought and way, and sort of um, ways of thinking about the way in which the world's organized. Um, and also uh, performances and actions that artists would make outside of any gallery context. So one of the manifestations of that came to be called earth art um, or land art. And that's where artists go out usually into the distant desert and with bulldozers do something to the land um, as their activity. And then, and then it's really the, the, the final result of what they do becomes an artwork. It's, it's not really dematerialized, but it's far off and hard to get to. Um, or artists just started doing performances where they would, you know, take off all their clothes and roll around in paint and chicken entrails. What, um, lots of crazy sort of activities became part of art, the art world too. And these these were temporal. They didn't they didn't last. So you couldn't couldn't replay them. So photography became really important in that environment because it could record things in this documentary way that um, gave artists something both to verify that they did what they did. You could say, here's a picture of my performance, so I did do the performance, or here's a picture of my, my bulldozer cut in the middle of the desert, so you could verify that that existed. Um, and they also gave them something to sell, so they became a kind of second order artwork or stand in for what the artwork was that was actually then collectible or at least notationally important to um, what galleries could show and what museums could collect. Um, so, so for many artists in the 60s, rebelling against abstract painting or painting of any sort and sculpture who were doing these sort of odd activities, photography became this essential tool that, it, that, that was, in a sense, enabling them to do what they did because it was creating the record of it. And in that process, many of them then became interested in photography itself, what it did, how it conveyed the world. Many of them became interested in a 19th century photographer named Edward Moybridge, who's famous for his motion study work and is usually thought of as a kind of precursor of motion pictures because he took one photograph after another and sliced up time into these small little bits in a way that's almost cinematic. But for these photographers, it was also interesting because they liked the idea of the series. They liked the idea that it was looking closely at a small moment of time and documenting something that was made strange by the camera. Yeah, you, you, uh, in this context, talk about how the ensuing confusion or potential confusion anyway, among the idea of an art object, an art act, 
and the documentation of it was in fact a feature of all this, not a, not a bug, as they say. Um, yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, it's something that's still debated today. For example, in the work of Anna, Anna Mendieta, um, who did lots of, uh, we call them performances, where she, she would uh, go into the landscape and then photograph her body or the, the impress of her body in the landscape um, with a photograph. And, and all we have left since she's deceased are the photographs of what she did. So they, there's still a kind of sense of, is the photograph the art object because that's what we have? Or was the art object her going out and doing that and then, and then photographing it was, was part of it? So critics of her work have written that it, it, in a way it doesn't make any difference. I mean, you get, you get into splitting hairs after a while that the, that the, the photographic act, which is already always preconsidered. In other words, the, the artists know that they're going to need the photograph, whatever it is they're doing is part of the art act. Taking the picture becomes part of what they do when they're thinking about making a work of art. So that the, it seems as, as, what results is not just an artifact of something, but also an integral part of what that art was. So that's what I mean. It's not it's not easily separated out that this is just a, this is just documentation, and the artistic intention happened somewhere else. It's it's all mixed together. A great example would be Vito Acconci, who did a series of performances which are basically him holding the camera, so that the camera becomes a kind of character with him in the little dramas that he plays out, which are about jumping and taking big steps and things like that in the, in the landscape. And, it, and he's, he's considering the camera's documentary ability as being part of what it is he's actually making art about. So there, I think it's really clear that, that photography becomes not just the documentary device, but becomes part of the subject matter of the art itself. So we're, let's introduce you into the story now. You, you uh, <laughs> offer nice context to uh, how you sort of came into this world um, in the sense that you were a member of really the first generation to grow up among the omnipresence of, of photographs, you know, from magazines like Life and Time to every living room having a television, um, but that it was when you got to college that your interest in photography got um, perhaps a hair more serious, and this was at Cornell in the late 60s. Um, can you tell us about that? Sure. I, I mean, I've been around photography my whole life because my, my father was this kind of amateur photography camera nut, like many, many people know this, this character that my dad was um, because their dads were the same, is that, is that they, they sort of would take all these pictures and then make you sit down at the end of a holiday weekend and, and look at their endless slides once the, once the sun went down. Um, so I was a victim of many slideshows from my, from my home environment. But then, but then I, he lent me his camera one year while I was in college and I took my own pictures and I, I took them in black and white. I didn't take slides. And um, I got interested in kind of this idea of photography 
I think because it was in black and white, it seemed like it more transformed the world than I ever saw in the pictures that he took. And I became fascinated with this. I tried to take a course at Cornell, but they were few and far between at Cornell. I tell the story in the book that I took the only course I could find, which was in the agriculture school. And I, I still have no idea why they taught photography in the agriculture school, but they did. Were you required to take pictures of cows? No, but I think that was the uh, probably the reason why they were teaching it, so, so you could photograph your farm. Um, but at the same time, I was really interested in poetry. That was my major, my major interest at the time. And I had a writing teacher named Steve Katz, who it turns out, when I found this magazine one day that it had writing by Steve Katz that accompanied photographs by a photographer named Lee Friedlander. Well, Lee Friedlander is a very famous photographer, but I'd never heard of him at the time. Um, he probably wasn't as famous then. But, um, and I just looked at, at these pictures by Friedlander and thought, these are like really interesting. They didn't look like any photographs I'd seen before. They, they kind of looked like they were bad. Um, like, what, why are these being reproduced in this magazine? I couldn't quite figure it out. So, that, so it just kind of stayed with me as a, a critical problem. And I think... Being trained in English literature and and writing, I I had this kind of critical muscle that was waiting to be used um, on something besides literature. And I just thought, well, photography is kind of interesting thing to think about. I just started paying attention to it. I started reading every book I could get my hands on, and um, that continued through graduate school and into getting to New York. I just became really interested in photography. I also thought I, I was going to be the next Lee Friedlander or something like everyone else in my generation that, that was into photography. We all sort of aspired to be street photographers, um, taking pictures of the human condition on the streets of New York. And I, I tried that and I discovered I was really quite bad at it. So, uh, Eventually, I said, let's go with what I'm really good at, which is writing about it, um, which is, you know, my critical career took off from that point. Right. So that's so 1971, you moved to New York, right? Yeah. And uh, had a, had jobs at a series of of publications as you, you know, move closer to fusing your uh literary side and your interest in photography and becoming a photography critic, what were some of the publications you worked for and, and how was, how was the media landscape developing at that time when it came to attitudes about writing about photography as art? Well, when I got there, I, I lucked into a job at a startup newspaper called the Herald, which turned out to be the most interesting place I ever worked just because the cast of characters there was fabulous. There were we were all masquerading as journalists, including me. But there were there were poets. There were there were there was a really good photographer, James Hamilton, who ended up being the staff photographer for the Village Voice later. There were art directors who became famous. My friend Charles Churchward later became the design director of Condé Nast magazines. Um, there they'd had a column called the Poet of the Week, and like Patty Smith was the poet of the week one week. So I remember her coming up to the office um, to get interviewed. It was just this crazy but fun 
um, experience masquerading as a newspaper. Um, but because it was so much fun, it didn't last long. It, it went out of business after about eight <laughs> months, I think. Um, so then I ended up uh, eventually in 1974 getting a job by seeing an ad, a help wanted ad in the newspaper of all places um, for Modern Photography Magazine, which was there were there were two sort of popular photography magazines, one called Popular Photography and one called Modern Photography, and they were sort of interchangeable, but um, they survived because they ca covered camera equipment. They reviewed photo, they reviewed cameras and lenses and did all these tests, and that's why most people bought the magazine. But I was hired to be the picture editor, which basically meant that I was supposed to do features about photographs being made that were if not art, at least good photo photographs as examples for people who were buying all these cameras and things. So that so that became sort of a an important place for me, um, in part because I learned most of what I know about the technical side of photography, which sometimes was useful when I was reviewing to understand how it how it works. Um, and also, it just allowed me to meet all these people because I was having to call up photographers practically every day of the week to ask them to use their pictures or ask them if they had any pictures we could use. So the other thing is that it, it, we specialized in long lunch hours in the publishing business then. So I would go out and I'd like run around and go to galleries and look at photography or even just look at art, whatever whatever was nearby. So um so that became a really great job, and I had a very supportive um, boss and mentor, Julia Scully, and we began to eventually write a series about contemporary photography that I think was really the first time a, a wide public got to see a lot of the photographers we now take for granted, Joel Marowitz, Robert Adams, um, Jan Groover, we we wrote articles about a lot of different um, people who were then new new names in the, in the business. So so from that, I I sort of got to write for um, Art in America magazine. I had a friend from college, Joan Simon, who was an editor there. So she introduced me to the editor Betsy Baker, and um, I began reviewing shows you know, these kind of 500 word reviews of photography shows that would appear in the, in the magazine there. And then in 1978, the Soho Weekly News called, and I guess they'd seen that I was writing these reviews in Art in America and that I, that I wrote for a magazine, and they asked me to start reviewing photography for them. I had an editor, Gerald Marzarati, who, handled the art coverage. And then in 1981, from out of nowhere, I got called by Hilton Kramer in the New York Times, who apparently had seen my writing in these different venues and thought I might possibly make it in the New York Times world. So after much back and forth, finally, in uh, I think it was the spring of 1981, my first piece appeared 
in the New York Times. And then I had a, a regular gig. So what was happening during all this period that I'm describing is, the, is that photography criticism was, was starting to blossom along with photography galleries and photography exhibitions in museums. Suddenly there was so much more activity than there ever had been. And it's, it's a kind of famous peculiarity of where photography was at the beginning of the 70s, which was when I got to New York, there was one critic writing about photography. His name is A.D. Coleman. He still writes about photography. Um, A.D. Coleman had a column in the New York Times, Popular Photography, and The Village Voice. So he was like in three different places at once, and he was basically seemed to be pretty much the only game in town. By the end of the by the end of the period, by the time I went to the New York Times, there were like twenty people writing about photography in the um, in in the Voice, in all the art magazines. In I forget if the Wall Street Journal was part of it, but lots of lots of different newspapers had added photography coverage, and there were scores of photography galleries that only showed photography shows, which is why. They needed to have a critic who knew about photography because we could we could cover those things. But but also photography was then making its way into what we would think of as your standard issue art galleries. So galleries like Sonnabend or Castelli would suddenly have a show that was photographs and um, not make a big deal about it. So by the early 80s, the, the question of whether photography was art was not 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 the key question, but it becomes a question of um, what it is that makes a photograph art and how that starts to play out in different contexts. Susan Sontag famously became interested in photography, published a book on it. Um, well, what effect did that broader interest have on photography criticism, which had, you know, by the early 80s had, had been going on, as you say? Yeah, I think the the question went from being is photography art to being what is photography? People, people when they really looked closely at it, <laughs> became became really interested in the, the sort of metaphysical essence of what photography was. And and Sontag, who started writing essays for the New York Review of Books um, soon after she saw the Dean Arbus retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in the early 70s was really representative of a large number of people, and I fancy myself included in that, that, that suddenly thought about, well, photography is like a subject for thinking about um, how it works, how it, what it does in the world, what, what, it, what it does. So its presence in the art world was, was less about being just a, a document of what artists were doing and, and more was being used in a way that called into into play its actual peculiarities and um, particularities of of what it was doing. Um, so, Sontag actually had the benefit of a large amount of writing that was being done in Europe, predominantly in France, but also from um, even earlier in the Frankfurt School. Walter Benjamin had had. Um, one of the great 20th century critics had um, spent a lot of time thinking about photography and, and wrote an essay called A Short History of Photography and more famously wrote 
the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, and photography was the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, as far as he was concerned, although he also was interested in film. Um, later, in the 70s, a lot of um, French semiotic thinking began being translated into English, and semiotics is, is a branch of linguistics which has to do with how, science, how language is a sign system. That's why it's called semiotics. It's a sign system. And, and writers like Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida, um, Jean Baudrillard, lots of, lots of different writers were sort of using this idea of how, how we can apply the tools of linguistic analysis to photography and finding photography to be a kind of odd duck outside of language. So this made it it made it problematic and therefore more interesting for a lot of these um, thinkers to write about. So what we now think of as critical theory made its appearance in the 70s and in a sense was popularized by Sontag's approach um, since she kind of incorporated that knowledge into the way she approached photography, but also through a um, magazine that um, started up in the 70s called October, which was begun by Annette Michelson and Rosalind Krauss. And it really was trying to herald a revolution in art that put photography into the practically the throne of, of um, what was important in the art world. That, that in a sense, photography came to represent everything that, that was going to be moving art beyond what it had been, which if you think of that what it had been was modernism, then the new era was going to be postmodernism. So in from the late 70s through the 80s, the idea that we were in this postmodern era in which art had been fundamentally transformed and that the agent of the transformation was photography really took hold in a lot of places. I'm not saying it was universal and some people still despised photography but um for a lot of for a lot of people photography became the subject of the critical conversation about what art had become and obviously a new generation of artists participated in this conversation by making art that was about what photography was in in a semiotic sense or in a, in a way in, in the way it was functioning in the world so that created um, what we now think of as postmodernist art um, was largely focused on photography, um, either directly as photographs or paintings that painted photograph from photographs. Um, so the most famous artist to come out of that era, of course, is Cindy Sherman, who photographed herself, but instead of those photographs being what we traditionally think of as self-portraits of the artist, they were portraits of her as a whole variety of roles, originally sort of um, B-movie Hollywood roles that, that looked like they came from film stills, which was her first series, to being um, based on Grimm's fairy tales, Renaissance paintings, just all these different kind of incarnations of appearances that were always had Cindy Sherman in them, but were not Cindy Sherman. And this, this just um, made her really f a fascinating 
subject for a lot of theoretical and critical conversation. One of the other ways that photography presents itself as um, the focus of some criticism uh, is in the context of the culture wars of the 1980s. You talk a little bit about your own involvement, but also more broadly about um, the, the, the angry, sometimes litigious reaction of the religious right to some photographs that were being produced by artists like Robert Maplethorpe and Andres Serrano. Um, and I'm curious about what you wrote about how, what, what the, uh, what these works opponents felt they saw in the photographs that maybe wasn't actually there. That's a complicated question because <laughs> um, I don't want to say that I see things in photographs that are really there and other people see things that are in photographs that aren't there, but, but the, the, um, the popularity of photography in, in the art world of the 80s sort of produced a counter-reformation, if you will, in terms of um, politicians deciding that photography was actually representative of contemporary art and that photographs that were, which they thought were pornographic or even blasphemous was another um, way they described them. That, the, that that they were in a sense standing in for all of contemporary art. And, the, and this came up in regards to the funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, that the government shouldn't be funding arts because look what they do. They take dirty photographs of things or they take photographs that, that are um, against our religion. So what I write about is, is easy to understand the case of Andre Serrano, which is... <laughs> He famously did a, a work called Piss Christ, which is reproduced in the book, so people can don't have to take my word for it. But it's got a title, Piss Christ, so you, you sort of know that it has something to do with Christ. But um, it's kind of this plastic crucifix floating in a kind of amorphous, somewhat yellowish um, ground. Very, but very kind of abstract looking um, in its way, but it became described by um, Senator Jesse Helms and others as being this picture of Christ submerged in a vat of urine. <laughs> and I just thought it was odd because it was it's like a plastic crucifix that they sell in the five and dime store. And the artist is telling you that it's, that urine is the is the medium in what you're looking at it, but it, it's it's really not. There's no vat there in the picture. There's there's nothing to really tell you about it except that the the title, which is outside the photograph itself, makes it annoying. But um, in any case, it became known as the as this blasphemous, sacrilegious piece of piece of artwork because it wasn't to evangelicals and the American family values movement, it wasn't a plastic cheap crucifix that was, you know, like a kind of embarrassing representation of a religious figure. It was the religious figure himself, which is like really, really odd. And they, 
So they, so they misread the photograph. More importantly, they misread what Serrano was doing, which is if they would have seen all his other photographs, which Piss Christ was part of a whole series in which he was using bodily fluids as sort of the medium of what he was talking about. And he's a good Roman Catholic boy. He knows that, that the whole idea of transubstantiation, the whole idea of of what Christ was doing in the world was, was becoming flesh, was becoming human and all the things that do with humanity. I mean, it's like, if you go to communion, what are you doing? You're drinking the, the blood and eating the flesh of the Lord. So, so in a way he was like humanizing the, the whole idea of what that religious experience was or pointing out how absurd it was or something, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't an isolated um, attempt to try and annoy people. So that's a long story that <laughs> no senator in Congress ever wanted to hear or ever did hear because it's it's too complicated. Um, Robert Maplethorpe is even more complicated because, and I wrote about him a lot in the 80s because he, he, he sort of, his work... Um, got under my craw and I couldn't, I couldn't leave it alone, which is that he, he did two kinds of work. He did sort of pleasant portraits and pictures of flowers that are very evocative and beautiful, beautifully printed, lit, the whole nine yards. They're compositionally exquisite things. And then he also would do a series which had to do with his homosexuality and a kind of S&M scene um, in which he depicted what many people took to be the practices of the gay subculture. This is like right before AIDS happened. So, the, so it, was more, it was more of a period of, of um, coming out and a sort of entry into the world of homosexuality. And, this, and for a lot of people, these pictures represented kind of like their worst fears about what this was all about. Um, S&M being not a... Um, universal practice, but um, part of the subculture that Maplethorpe depicted. So the question is, well, well, aren't these pornography? And I struggled with this because I thought, well, they they kind of are pornography. I mean, the first time I saw them, I was like, whoa, that's, that's pretty over the top. <laughs> um, never saw that before, which is photography's famous of examples of Hadn't seen that before, um, but they were they were done by a, a guy who was making art. So it's like you can't you can't call something that's made as art pornography because the Supreme Court has neatly defined it as um, not having any artistic value. So so what I tried to think of Mavithorpe in in the context of postmodernism is that he was actually recontextualizing pornography in order to make us look at it and to rethink it and think about how we react to it. And I, I actually think his work does do that, which is to, is because it's like more well-made and more beautiful than the kind of, you know, Polaroid examples of, of homemade pornography that are usually pretty cheesy, um, by, by making it sort of like aestheticizing it, he actually makes you think about it in this different kind of a way. And I think that's, that's what his work was. But when he was having, when his, after his death, his work um, 
was in an exhibition that was then put on trial, basically, in Cincinnati. And um, the defense attorneys had this idea that I might be a good um, defense witness to talk about this as actually being art. But when I explained to them what I just explained to you, my rather complicated theory of, well, it's pornography, but it, because it's aestheticized, it's actually commenting on pornography or making us look at pornography differently, I think they thought that was going to be like a little too much for the jury to handle. So I never, I just watched, I didn't testify. <laughs> Would you say that there, that part of the reaction was due to these artworks being in the, what I'm trying to say is that, that you know, because for some people there is an expectation that photography is more faithfully a representation of life or reality than painting or sculpture, that that, that contributed to the degree to which people were offended by some of these images. Yeah, yeah I think as, as much as photography wants to get away from it or to claim that it's, it's all, you know, whatever's represented is, is there because of the artist, it's like photography record something that's in front of the lens. So, so there is this sense whenever anybody reacts to a, a photograph that it's different than reacting to a painting. A painting, you can say, oh, they just like made that up or that their hand slipped and they drew that. I don't know. With a, with a photograph, you're pretty much sure that it's like something was out there and the camera brought it back to us. It's a, it's with digital photography and Photoshop now it's a little less um, obvious, but I think still there's a there's a, a undying sense that photography actually brings back a representation of something out there. What's it's the in semiotics terms it's a it's an indexical sign. It 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 contains something of what it is, right? So so if you have a portrait, it's actually like a piece of the person there. There are, um, lots, there's lots of writing about the fact that photography seems to contain part of what it shows you, but at the same time, it's also not the thing that it shows you. And for the, I think that's sort of the foundational notion of visual literacy is that you come to distinguish between a photograph showing you something and thinking that whatever it is, is actually it, right? I think this is one of the perils of our COVID era is that kids who are just on their screens all the time are, are gonna start losing the notion that, that what they're looking at is not the real thing. That they're, you know, if you sp spend eight hours a day playing a combat game, you're still not in combat. But, or combat is something else than you playing that game, right? And um, that's just one of the, the sort of things that to me make photography eternally interesting is that it doesn't, it doesn't lose that no matter how sophisticated you get about comprehending a photograph as a representation, as a construct with all sorts of cultural biases built into it, it's still is delivering something that was in front of the lens. As you as you wind down the story in your book, in the beginning of the 1990s, you're making plans to leave New York and leave your job at the New York Times. Um, 
kind of amid, you say, the realization that it's not really necessary anymore to proclaim the legitimacy of photography's presence in the art world. Um, did To what extent did that feel like a victory? And to what extent was it kind of a letdown because that process had been exciting and, and fun? Well, I guess that felt like both. It was, it was, <laughs> it was both sort of like, well, what am, what am I doing now? I just kind of wrote myself out of a job <laughs> because <laughs> if photography is integrated in the art world, why, why is there somebody who's only paying attention to photography or mostly paying attention to photography? Um, and, and the sort of sense of struggle was a real, real propellant of um, what my writing was about. And, and as soon as that seemed less, less urgent, when there was a moment when I just felt like the, the shows that museums are putting on, the, the shows at the galleries of their, you know, their parts of their stable that were photographers, it's like, I've already seen this, I've already thought about it and um, I was just afraid that the that the whole era of radical breakthrough innovation had come to an end. I mean, I think I think I was a little premature or nervous um, without needing to be, but but to a large extent, it's true. It's like what I'd really staked my um, career on was pretty much saying photography is like should be the center of attention, and then photography is the center of attention. What am I gonna what am I gonna do? And I just thought, well, photography is going off in other directions. And and being a critic, I'm I I was also conscious that being a critic, you're always responding what to what somebody else does. I mean, it's the the curators are the ones that actually, you know, spot the trend or say, this is important, this isn't important. Here's what you should be looking at, because they put on shows of of what they believe in. So I thought, well, maybe that would be more interesting. So I actually went off and sort of became a, a glorified curator for several years to, to say, well, let, let me just put up the shows that I think are really interesting. And I did. And I think they were really interesting. But, but it was a different, it was just a different activity <laughs> than, than, uh, than analyzing sort of the, the lay of the land of what was happening in this, um, you know, broader broader sense of sort of like being a being a kind of critical drone looking over the landscape of things. We're delighted that you've taken this opportunity to reflect back on this time. I love your book. We're so proud to publish it. Um, we've fast forwarded through really an endless amount of material that you cover so much in this book. And uh, we encourage people to read it. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it a little bit. Well, thank you. I feel like I've been talking nonstop, but I also feel like I've left out all these exciting parts of the book that we haven't had a chance to talk to. I know. Well, pe people will have to buy it and read it <laughs> to get the rest of it. It can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com to keep up with our podcast series and the latest from our blog and our authors.